We're kind of doing an Old Testament overview, and we're talking about the person of God, and we're, we're seeing how he interacts with all of these different people in the Old Testament. And we kind of want to know more about God. We are, we're going to be looking at these, these examples, these, these men and women in the Old Testament who have interacted with God, and we're going to see how they... They responded to him, and and that's going to be instructive for us, Uh, but what I really hope that we get when we look at this is a better picture of who God is and what he's doing through the Old Testament as we look through it. So we're focusing on how he interacts with people, and this one's going to be pretty interesting. Um, This one was difficult. Uh, but I think that it's, it's good and it's, it's worth uh, thinking about. But before we get into that, how many of you guys were, were raised in church or like you spent most of your life in church? There's a lot of us in here. Okay. It's, it's okay if you weren't. It was just like trying to relate here. Um, so when I, I was raised in church, like I can't remember not being in church. So that's part of, part of my background and I remember that when I was a when I was younger, we had in my in the first church that I was in, we had kids crusades. Looking back, that's an odd name for them. Now you'd probably be more familiar with VBS. Everybody have VBS. Um, <clears throat> for those of us who were in church, uh, it was common. Every year, every summer, we'd have this VBS, which was kind of like a, a short one week kids camp at church, Bible camp. People, kids would come together. They would goof off, play games learn hopefully about God. There's usually like a drama or skit that goes on. And at the end of of the night, kind of towards the end of the week, they would start to do altar calls. They would do invitations at the end, trying to evoke responses from these kids. And it was kind of funny because you would see, once you get to like the last night, you look up there and it's like, wow, Billy's up there getting saved again for the third time this week. And like, that was pretty common in, in, in VBS for, for kids to keep going back up there and to keep saying the same prayer. It's like they didn't, they didn't know if they were saved the first time. So they want to go again and again and again. And they keep going up there to get saved like it didn't take. And maybe if they just keep doing it, then it would somehow work out a little bit better than maybe the more they do it. And I think that that's, you know, that's kind of funny looking back on it. If you were, if you, that is kind of a familiar experience for you. You see these kids just always asking to get saved. It's like, well, it either happens or it doesn't. Like, and we think that that's funny, but I think that we have more of that kind of mentality as adults than we realize. Like we might not be responding to every altar call. And every time somebody says, do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Like, oh, well, lead me through the sinner's prayer just in case. Uh, like, we don't, we don't act like that, but I feel like we still have kind of in the back of our minds this idea that we have to do something to make sure that God is really on our side or that he is really going to bless us. And, and even for those of us who are in church and maybe somebody says, you know, it's not by your works and we nod our head and we say, yeah, it's not by my works. But practically, when we live day in and day out, we, we are affected by how well we think. If we're Christians, then we are affected by how well we think we're doing with God. And it's not, it's not 
so much worried about, is God going to keep his promise? It's more, am I doing good enough? And so when we sin, when something happens, we feel like it's all falling apart. Like we can't, we can't do anything right. And that, there, there's an aspect of that that's true, but the guilt for most of us doesn't lead us to lean on God. It causes us to think thoughts like, well, I need to do more. Like, I need to work so that God will forgive me of this. Maybe I need to go to church more, volunteer, get involved, do something, so that my life seems a little bit more put together, so that I can somehow curry favor with God. Like, I, I feel like we, we act that way, even though we wouldn't say that we act that way. I, I feel like that happens. Like, we try to manipulate a little bit God's plans by doing something to earn something from him. We're going to look today at someone who is very manipulative. Um, we're going to look at Jacob in, in the Old Testament. And we're going to start in Genesis 25. It's kind of cool um, going through this. I feel like I've gotten a bigger, bigger picture of, of Genesis. And, and I didn't anticipate this. I was trying to read through Genesis and see all of the interactions with Jacob and Jacob and God. And, and Jacob is first mentioned in Genesis 25, and he is last mentioned in 50. So like he covers the rest of Genesis. And it kind of all revolves around this continuing covenant. Last week we talked about how God separated Abram from the Chaldeans, from this place that was in and around Babylon. And he takes him and he, he says, you're not going to be a Babylonian anymore. I'm going to make you a new person. You're going to be Abraham. I'm going to make a nation from you. You're going to have kids. And I am going to be with your descendants forever. And he makes this promise and he founds it on himself. God does. He says, I promise essentially based on my own reputation, based on my own name, that I'm going to keep this promise to you, Abraham. So Abraham has his son, Isaac, and then Isaac has another son, Jacob. And we're going to read about him here before he's even born. So if you turn to Genesis 25, this is verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire to the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, 
but Rebecca loved Jacob. So this, we, we talked last week about how the continuity now of these families is very important because the promise given to Abraham had to do with his family. And so them having kids now is a big deal. And we can take that even further back to Genesis 3.15 when God says, through your offspring, Satan is going to be defeated. And, and so kids are a big deal. And God comes along here to tell Rebecca something. This is before they're even born. So they don't, they haven't made any decisions yet. They haven't come to any realizations of their own. But God comes in and he says, the younger is going to be the guy. He's going to be the one who carries on the covenant. That's going to be a theme that you will see in other places in the Bible, that he comes and he selects Jacob and says he's going to be the one. The name that they give him is interesting. Supplanter, deceiver, um, because he's holding on to his brother's heel like he's got him and, and he's going to rule over him. That name would define much of his life. Um, because he, he grew into that name. He became a pretty manipulative person. I think that it's interesting that Isaac loved Esau. Like he favored Esau. And I wonder, did he know what God said? It doesn't say explicitly whether he did or not. You would kind of have to assume. If you're... If you're Rebecca and you have this vision from God and he tells you something, you think that that's probably worth sharing with your spouse. I have to imagine that she probably said something. And yet Isaac is undeterred by that. He favors Esau. So that in and of itself creates some problems, some family drama, which we're going to read about right now. So turn to chapter 27. And we're going to read most of this because this is very important. Chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt for game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them, from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go out and bring them to me. 
Let's just pause there for a second. So Isaac is, is about to die. He's old enough that he's saying, okay, any day now, this could happen. And so he wants to bless his son. He wants to essentially give the covenant to him. This is kind of the idea. Like we're passing this on to you. You become my heir. And like I said, I feel like it's odd that Isaac would do this that he would want to bless Esau after hearing from God that Jacob was the one who would rule over Esau. And that creates all kinds of turmoil here. But even more serious, I think, than that, perhaps, is Rebekah's response and Jacob's response. They say, we have to take matters into our own hands. We have to do something to make sure that Esau does not get this. I think that their actions indicate that they didn't have much faith in God's promise. Because if God says something, we've seen so far, he, he makes good on his own word. We've seen that in the life of Abraham. So now, when we get into this situation, you would think that if they had the faith of Abraham, who was willing to take his own son to be sacrificed, if that's what God wanted, because he knew that God was going to make good on his promise, if they had that kind of faith, then they, you would think that Rebekah and Jacob would be able to sit back and say, let him do whatever he wants to, but God's going to do what God's going to do. You would think that that would be their posture. But that's not what they do. They say, we're going to deceive him. And I don't think that this was in any way a good decision on their part. I don't think that this is condoned here. But here's what they do. They go out. It says, verse 14, So he went out and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that, you, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son as is, is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give of you 
give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn son, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then? that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? There you go. For he has cheated me these two times. Uh, we, we skipped one, but it's okay. Um, he took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered him and said, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets all that you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? We'll stop there. So it was a lot to read, but I felt like it was worth it because the, the future is going to hinge on this, I feel like. Um, so Jacob, like I said, he grew into his name. We didn't read it, but before this, he had deceived his brother another time or tricked him, I guess. His brother had walked in from the field and was starving. And I'm going to say literally starving because he was so willing to do anything that he gave up his birthright. He gave up his status as the firstborn. And, and he was willing to do that because he said, I'm just, I'm just starving. And what good to me is any kind of material blessings or anything if I'm going to die right here? So Jacob kind of, he took that from him. And now he's outraged, Esau is, because Jacob has now deceived not just Esau, but also his father. So... He did this, I'm going to say, knowing that God had already chosen to bless him. But he takes matters into his own hands 
to manipulate the situation to try to get the best outcome that he can perceive. So he does this thing. He lies. And now his brother's anger is rightly stoked. Like his, his brother is going to kill him. And so he has only one choice. He has to run away. And so he does. He goes to Haran where his uncle lives. And he's going to live with them until Esau's anger turns away. When he is there, life doesn't get much easier for him. Um, he runs into this pretty girl. And he finds out that she is one of his relatives. And she is an eligible bachelorette. So he goes to her father and asks for her hand in marriage. And his, his, her father is, is, seems overjoyed. This man who is of our family, he's one of us, wants to come and marry my daughter. This is a good thing. He says, okay, you can do it. Here's the price, though. You will work for me seven years. And to Jacob, it's like not a big deal. He says, fine, whatever, I'll do it. Because it said that he loved her so much that he was willing to do whatever he had to. So seven years, it said, it says later, it seemed like days to him. So it goes by and he works these seven years happily. But then his, he gets tricked. So what he does to his family ends up getting done to him. His, his uncle gives him another daughter who he was not thrilled with. And, and he's understandably upset. So he goes to his, his uncle and he says, why have you done this to me? He says, well, it's not, it's not something that we do, giving away the younger women. We, she was older. We needed to give her away in marriage first. Please understand. But how, however, if you work another seven years, then you can have Rachel, the person you really wanted to marry. So he works another seven years. And during this time, even, even in the middle of this working, things aren't going exactly well. Later on, it says that Laban changes his wages all the time. He's constantly trying to manipulate Jacob. So he's, he's not a great boss, but he's already in deep. And he's like, I've got to finish out this, this agreement. And he works, and he eventually receives Rachel as his wife. So he's happy. But it's still drama because now he's got two wives and, and they start getting into this birth war. <laughs> who's who's going to give him the most sons? Leah gives him four sons, which in, in culture back then, family was huge. If you were going to sustain yourself, if you were going to become wealthy, if you were going to become somebody, you had to have a family. You had to work a farm. You had to have labor, hands to do labor. So... It's a big deal. We've got all these boys going to carry on the name. But Rachel cries out to God because she's not having any kids. And she says, God, why, why is this happening to me? And God hears her voice and then she conceives. And then they start arguing about who's giving the most kids, essentially. Not only did they start arguing about it, they start giving their servants over to him to try to get more kids. And eventually he's got like 11 kids, 11 boys, more than that in girls, but 11 boys. And it's just, it's drama for him because you can go read about it if you want to. Um, it's a lot of drama, but he is being manipulated by his, his uncle and, and by his wives now. 
and, and it's just kind of a mess. And not only that, he gets to the point where his family is so big and his possessions are so big that they start arguing with his uncle's workers and all these things. And God eventually comes up to Jacob. And in chapter 31, 3, he says, sorry, chapter 31, 3, He says, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. His mom, it's been 20 years, and his mom did not call him up and say, come back home. So she said she was going to do that as soon as Esau's wrath had turned away. It's been 20 years. She hasn't called. But now God is saying, move up from this place and go back to the land that I promised you. Why? Why, would, why is that? Why couldn't he just go live somewhere else? Does anybody know? Why couldn't he just go move and stay in Haran or go move anywhere else? Why is God calling him back? He wants him there. That's a, good, that's a good answer. He wants him there. It's related to what he told to Abraham. <coughs> what, okay, people are shaking their head like, yeah, I got the answer. Prove it. Covenant. So part of the covenant that he gave to Abraham was, you're going to have a land, specifically the land of your sojournings, the Canaanites' land. So this, this big swath of land next to the Mediterranean, he's saying, you get this. But right now, Jacob is living, I think it's in the north. He's living in the north, away from this land, away from this land that God has promised him. But God says, come back. His mom doesn't say, come back. We're not sure about what's going on with Esau, but God says, come back with all you, your family, all your possessions. And so he picks up and he leaves and he's going back. Not before having a big tussle with his uncle over everything. His his uncle's upset because he's taking things. He's taking his family, his grandkids, and and he's not going to see him and he doesn't want to see him leave. And he has to get into arguments with his, his uncle. So he's, he's struggling with his uncle this whole time. And he eventually gets away from him. And he's heading back to his family. And he knows, I'm going to have to confront Esau. I'm going to have to try to survive my brother's wrath. And so, let's read in chapter 32. And we can start at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanan. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. He knows that he's going to have to confront him eventually. So he says, let's go ahead and get done with it. Because Esau now lives in his own place. And rather than taking a, a more direct route to back to his family members, he says, let's just go and do it. We're going to go and we're going to stop by Esau and we are going to try to reconcile that relationship. So he says, send my servants ahead, tell him we're coming, let him know. 
And the response, verse 6, the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. You just imagine him like getting pale. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that's left will escape. So he's preparing for a battle. In his stress, though, he goes to God. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and, do, and to your kindred that I might do, your good, do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he, he goes to God and he said, God, you told me to come out here. I came out here, and you've, you've blessed me, you've made me into somebody. And now you're telling me to go back home, but my brother's going to come and kill me. And every, all these kids, my wives, he's going to take everything. He stays there that night. Verse 13, from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed the night in the camp. So he, he goes to God in prayer and, and says, God, please spare me. Please Fulfill the promise that you've made to me. And then he gets up and he comes up with an idea. He has a plan. He is going to try to make this look as good as possible to his brother Esau. So once again, he has not really escaped this pattern of thought. I can somehow make this better than it is. I can do something to affect change in this situation. So he, he devises this idea. He, he takes a portion of his flock, and a portion of his flock uh, was something like 500 animals, massive amounts of animals. And he's put them into droves, five different groups. And he said, I want my servants herding these, these animals to Esau, and I want them to come one at a time for maximum effect so that one group is going to come up, and then the servants are going to come up, and they're going to say, Please accept this as a gift from Jacob. He's behind us. And then maybe a couple hours later, another drove comes up. Lots of animals. Please accept this gift from Jacob. He's behind us. Five times. 
that this happens, hoping that maybe his brother will relent from this wrath and, and from killing everything he has. And so he's trying to, to do something to manipulate as best as he can this situation to get a good outcome. And he stays the night, like he's waiting while they go off. And he stays behind the river, giving him some distance. So like, even if he comes, he's got to cross this river. And he's, he's just stressed out. I doubt he would have slept that much anyway. But if he was planning on it, something happens. And this is one of the more strange interactions in the Old Testament. Tanner's really excited to see what I say about this. <laughs> Verse 22. The same night he arose, Jacob arose, and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the river. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. What? I don't know what he thought. But imagine that you're in, you're in war mode. There are 400 men over there. They outnumber you. You suspect that they are going to kill you. You've just sent your family away. You've plotted as best you can. We're going to divide into two camps. We're going to send five groups of animals up there to try to appease him. These people are going to go this way. We're going to go this way. If he attacks, we'll have the river, blah, blah, blah. Like he's, he's strategizing this whole thing. All of a sudden, a man comes up in the middle of the night. Probably can't see him all that well anyway. He starts wrestling with him. What do you assume is going on here if you're Jacob? Esau has got me. Or somebody, one of his servants... But understandably, he fights back because he's already in fighting mode. And they wrestle all night long. Okay, verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. So they're wrestling, wrestling for a long, long, long time. Surely he's getting worn out. But... The sun's coming up. And he says, this, this, this guy he's wrestling with, kind of just inexplicably, says, the sun's coming up, let me go. <laughs> and he, 
he touches his hip. It doesn't say he struck his hip. Like he didn't say hit, broke. He touches his hip and it goes out of socket. That's a lot of pain. So he's screaming in agony now because his hip is out of joint. And all he can do is hold on to this guy. who's now trying to get away. He comes to this realization. And I'm not sure how. It does not explicitly say. But he comes to this realization. This is not a man. This is more than a man. Because... He holds on for everything that he has and he says, bless me. That's not something that you just say to somebody. It's not something he would have said to Esau. It's not something he would have said to some random guy, some robber. It's something that you say to an authority figure. Bless me. He has the realization, and I'm not sure at what point in the night this happens, But he gets the realization that this is God or one of his representatives. Later on in Hosea, it says he wrestled with an angel. So that's the best that we have. And you can debate that yourselves if you want to. Um, But he comes to this realization and he holds on to him and says, bless me. Realizing that this this is somebody from God now that he's dealing with. And it's interesting what he asks in verse 27. After he says, I won't let you go until you bless me, he says, what is your name? Does that ring any bells for anybody? It's like his dad. Like when he goes in front of his dad and he's requesting this blessing, his dad says, what's your name? And now God is asking him, what's your name? And he's wrestling with him and he's saying, bless me. At this, at this height of his weakness, when his hip has been dislocated and he can't fight anymore and his brother is over there with 400 people and he's at the end of himself and he's weak and vulnerable and he can't do anything. He can't manipulate his way out of this situation. At that point, he asks God for a blessing. And God asks him what his name is. And he, sa- he answers, truthfully this time, Jacob. And I feel like this is, a tur- this is obviously a turning point in his life. He's done as much as he can to get as much as he could up until this point in time. But now at the end of himself, he goes to God, realizing he can't do anything for himself. And he's asking him to bless him. And the angel gives him a new identity. Like he did with Abraham, like God did with Abraham. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I don't honestly think that he, he won this fight. And I don't think that you can really would the evidence say that he won this fight? We hear about in other places of the Old Testament, angels come down and kill tens of thousands of people in an evening. 
And, and we know God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. So, what's, did he really, did he prevail in the sense that he beat God in a fight, like a fist fight? I don't think so. I think that the prevailing is him recognizing his weakness and asking God for a blessing which is what he should have done in the first place, rather than attempting to manipulate the situation or overcome his dad, his brother, all these different people. The prevailing was recognizing that he was weak before God. And I feel like the point of this, the point, because it's so weird, like wrestling, it's so weird. I feel like the point of this, in the, the, like this climax of this story, when, when he is just stressed out, the point of the wrestling at this point was to bring him to his knees and to, and to lower him a few pegs and to cause him to realize that he was dependent on God. And there are a lot of questions you could continue to ask. I read a lot of commentaries, most of them not helpful. Um, and you could continue to, to analyze this to death. But I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary, and he, he said something that was just like, it was so good that I'm going to read it. So he, he asks all these questions, and he specifically highlights this when he's asking him for his name. And then he responds, why do you ask my name? Matthew Henry's thought on that is this. The discovery of his name was reserved for his deathbed. Instead of telling him his name, he gave him his blessing, which was the thing he wrestled for. He blessed him there, repeated and ratified the blessing formerly given to him. And here's his thought on this. Spiritual blessings which secure our felicity are better and much more desirable than fine notions which satisfy our curiosity. An interest in the angel's blessing is better than an acquaintance with the name. The tree of life is better than the tree of knowledge. And I was like, that's some heady stuff. Good, good job, Matthew Henry. The, the point of this is not to get all the details. They're hidden from us. This is very odd. I think the point is to realize that he had to come to the end of himself and, and to reach out to God. So, how does, this, how does this relate to us? There's a lot more that happens in Jacob's life. We will probably recap some of it in the future. But how, how does this carry forth to us? Obviously, like I've already said, the continuity of this covenant is a huge deal. And so that in and of itself is enough for us to respond and to get excited about and to just say that God has done incredible things, weird things, things we wouldn't have thought of to continue this covenant. The end of that covenant and the beginning of another one is, is Christ. So from this family that, that is now being preserved by God, Christ comes. And, and I'm, 
I think that we have a similar picture. It's different, but there are similarities in what Christ did. Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He condescends to us. And he reveals our brokenness by showing us the weight of our sins in the fact that he had to die for them. And he reveals by his sacrifice, by the necessity of his sacrifice, that we are utterly incapable of securing God's blessing for ourselves. And so the only way, this is us like Jacob, the only way that you can obtain God's blessing through Christ, that he does, he extends to everybody. The only way that you can receive that, the only way you can obtain it, is by admitting your own weakness and by clinging to him for mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we are all broken people.